Vladimir Putin recently accused the Western world of trying to, quote, cancel a whole 1,000-year culture. It might seem like just another powerful white dude complaining about being canceled, but some facts. Russian acts are banned from Eurovision this year. Christie's and Sotheby's called off auctions of Russian art. The Munich Philharmonic parted ways with its conductor, Valery Gergiev, who's an old friend of Putin's. The Bolshoi Ballet got booted from a residency at London's Opera House. And many, many miles from the Kremlin, a man in Peoria, Illinois, made a decision. Ahead, Today Explained, I'm Noelle King. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please silence your cell phones. The program is about to begin. It's Today Explained. Maestro George Stelluto, music director of the Peoria Symphony Orchestra in Peoria, Illinois, had a big April concert planned. It was billed as Russian Wonders. As you might guess, it featured the works of Russian composers. And then an invasion happened. And now... Our concert is called now Unity with Ukraine. But it's not an anti-Russian program by any stretch of the imagination. And we are doing Tchaikovsky's Second Symphony, which includes a lot of Ukrainian folk melodies, because uh, going back several generations into Tchaikovsky's background, his great-great-grandfather and great-grandfather were Ukrainian. In fact, his last name was Chaika, and eventually it was Russianized to Tchaikovsky, which was kind of a a tradition of the day if you were working in Imperial Russia. What was the response from the members of your orchestra, from your musicians, when you told them we're changing the program? Um, they understood, and they had, they were uh, pleased. Some of them had expressed concern. What sorts of things were you hearing? You know, there's a general concern about it because of what's going on around the world and other organizations canceling uh, certain Russian artists or guest artists. So we were getting just concerns about doing a, a concert, if you will, that was all 
uh, Russian programming and was that sending any kind of message. So we decided to adjust it a bit and also address Tchaikovsky's background, which everybody thinks he's a Russian composer, and he certainly was part of Imperial Russia, but his background was uh, Ukrainian, and that was kind of covered up, if you will, during the communist era. And I had to point out to people once we decided to keep uh, Tchaikovsky on the program but go to the Second Symphony, which was nicknamed the Little Russian. Would you describe the first movement of the Second Symphony? What does it sound like? It starts out kind of solemn. It uses Ukrainian folk melodies. One of them is a folk melody called Down by Mother Volga, which refers to the River Volga. And uh, sounds very serious. And then it becomes quite energetic. I would say it's got a kind of intensity about it. But in Tchaikovsky's context, I don't think that this intensity is combative or anything like that. It's just a kind of intense folk energy about it. And sometimes those, even those celebratory pieces were in minor keys. He quotes another folk song in it called Spin, Oh My Spinner. You know, this is an obvious homage to Ukrainian culture, and he's he's done that in, in at least 30 of his compositions. He was a world-renowned conductor. He grew up in St. Petersburg, worked in Moscow, was world-famous. In fact, he conducted the opening concert at Carnegie Hall when it was built. No kidding. But he also you know, didn't quite fit into the culture of his country at the time. I mean, he was, uh, he was gay. He kind of has a, you know, a, a place in, in our contemporary society because he, he was somebody who lived in society, was revered as an artist by society, but didn't quite fit in. And um, so I think, you know, now is the time for his music to be understood, his background to be understood, and his uh, ancestry to be understood in the, from the fact that even that was a bit of a cover-up. You know, he was a famous composer worldwide. Vladimir Putin came out and made a statement recently. He said, the West is trying to cancel Russian culture. Now, you've made some pointed choices about which works you're going to play at a symphony orchestra concert in Peoria, Illinois. Many leaders in the arts are making similar decisions. What do you think of what Vladimir Putin said, the West is trying to cancel Russian culture? I really don't think that's accurate. As we all know, you know, there's, there's the spin, the propaganda that takes place to foment whatever sentiments are uh, serving the people that say them. You know, there are some organizations out there, 
orchestras that have canceled Russian concerts because they thought it was appropriate, and they're receiving, I would say, a little bit of criticism for taking that stance, that intense stance, by other organizations in the West. So I don't think there's a, an attempt to cancel Russian culture or get rid of it. And, you know, we've always seen that during the First World War. There was a lot of sentiment in uh, France and other countries, even in the U.S., of, of not doing any German repertoire. And, of course, more reasonable minds um, uh, prevailed in those cases where it's like, you know, it's not the culture, it's not the people that we're upset with. It's the people in charge that are perpetrating these injustices on another country. And nobody that I know and respect feels that way. Russia has added so much to the world culture. Anybody that wants to cancel it, is that's an ill-advised approach. And so at the end of the day, what do you hope that changing your concert program is going to achieve? What does it really do? I hope that it gets people to think a little more about what's going on, to think past uh, the initial indignance and anger to realize where these uh, things are coming from. So I, I, I just hope it gets people to think a little more uh, through the idea and the presentation of music, which can kind of help you to let down your guard and open up your mind a little bit and think about, um, you know, that we all have indignations and fears and senses of injustice and that we have to maybe take a breath first and realize that we're all one we're all one humanity everybody is in the same boat if you will and uh, we have to stop shooting holes in the boat does music ever feel small in the face of all this It doesn't feel small to me ever, but it can feel small and insignificant if you don't understand the value and the power that it has. And a great example of this, of course, was during the siege of Stalingrad during the um, Second World War. The orchestra there was playing concerts while bombs were being dropped on the hall and on the city. And so, you know, their sense of how important this culture is, not because it's just entertainment, but because it's important to your quality of life, to your health of your mind, and to the maintenance of your being, um, I don't think it can be insignificant or small. I don't think it has that capacity. Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says, no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. 
To get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That's mintmobile.com slash explained. You could cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Today Explained comes from Ramp. This ad goes out to all the finance professionals looking for love. I'm just kidding. Looking for a better way to simplify business finance across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting. And to all the accountants tired of the same old finance software, Ramp may be the answer you've been looking for. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. So what does that mean? Well, according to Ramp, they give finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. Issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions. Automate expense reporting so you don't waste time. Ramp says its accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so that you don't have to. That could put an end to chasing down receipts and to your employees spending hours submitting expense reports. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash explained, ramp.com slash explained, ramp.com slash explained. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions do apply. It's Today Explained, Simon Morrison, professor of music and Slavic languages at Princeton. Where do you come down on the notion that responsibility should be placed on Russian artists and musicians and even dead composers for Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine? Right now, I can understand the um, resistance on the part of programmers to present a lot of Russian music, uh, Russian artists, I can understand that, especially what we've been hearing about in the last couple of days, uh, this monstrousness. And in terms of actually suddenly everyone is performing Valentin Silvestrov, who is an eminent a Ukrainian composer in his 80s. It's like he's been around for a while now and we haven't been performing this music um, till this moment. The music has always been great, has always been awesome, has always been about deep spiritual matters. And... Yeah, I understand you want to perform this music now as a gesture of solidarity, but um, I don't know if Silvestrov uh, would be particularly comfortable having his art reduced to you know, political protest. I will say that um, most artists who um, come from Russia and are currently saddled with obviously a very unpopular identity um, view themselves as, um, you know, as artists first and foremost. Uh, they are not nationalists by pedigree. Um, it's just not wired into most people's psyches to think about the relationship between art and nation in a close in a close way. Um, most Russian composers try very hard not to be Russian. Why? Why was that? Well, Russian nationalism was a very small slice of 19th century music, and uh, Russian composers actually found that to be really limiting. And um, if it meant using Russian folklore or Russian fairy tales and legends as subject matter, uh, their problem was that um, most of their training was international. Their sources of inspiration were international. And so, uh, although it was fun for a while to put 
um, together works that dealt with, you know, Russian languages, intonations, and folk subjects and so forth. They actually realized they were putting themselves into a kind of bunker, and they, you know, wanted to be international. Do you have a sense of what it's like for artists trying to navigate this now? I mean, there's a lot of symbolism involved here, but also involved are people who really do need to make a living, people who eat based off of, you know, their music, uh, their dancing. What happens to folks like this when we decide to cancel a part of the culture for a, a particular period of time and a particular reason? It's it's worse than a Faustian bargain for a lot of a lot of artists who were pro Putin. Yeah, they're getting annulled out west. And then if you come out and say, actually, you know what, I was pro Putin and I regret that, or I've come to a reckoning, or recognizing the true nature of that regime, I cannot countenance anymore. Then they get annulled back home. So it's a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Does this make sense to you? Do the cancellations make sense to you? I can understand it from an emotional and ethical standpoint. In terms of what the music is often about, I don't understand it. The notion of um, helping Putin out by uh, annulling and canceling Russian culture, by actually reinforcing his paranoia, his fortress mentality, his sense that they're all out to get us, which is paraded every night on television for everybody over 50 to look at. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not helpful. And um, so I, on one hand, I see, yes, it's, I can understand why right now is not the time for Russian ballet. I can see that we should exercise forbearance or reschedule things. But to do it in a kind of like, because you're Russian or because you're a Russian artist, you know, you're tainted or contaminated somehow. Um, I, I think that that just is just another form of hatred that... Um, contributes to what we're dealing with now, which is an absolute, you know, barbaric, you know, seemingly endless monstrosity that's been unleashed on Ukraine. We talked to George Stoluto in Peoria earlier. He changed his concerts program. It was Russian Wonders. Now it is Unity with Ukraine. And I wonder, could we do the reverse? Could you design a concert for us that would showcase what Russia has to offer but also illustrate, as you said, that not all Russian artists like being caught up in their country's terrible politics. What would be on your program at this time in history? I would program the 1812 Overture. Even though that seems to be a counterintuitive example. You know, it's, it's not Tchaikovsky's most serious composition by any stretch of the imagination, but the reason I would program it. it has to do with the fact that it was a celebration of the triumph over invaders in this case the napoleonic invasion that ended in 1812 it ended when uh, russia rather than being dominated by another country and an enemy force well, the citizens of Moscow burned down their own city to prevent it from being taken over. Absolutely apocalyptic, active resistance. There's um, a lot of music by Russian composers that protests inhumanity, that champions the dispossessed the alienated, the exiled, that protest tyranny. The most raw and explicit um, form of protest I can think of is 
Shostakovich's 13th Symphony. In 1962, he put out a very provocative symphony that included a male chorus, and that chorus sang poems by the poet Evgeny Yevtushenko, who was a dissident poet. And the first movement, and the thing that inspired the rest of the movements, was a poem called Baba Yar. And uh, the opening line of that piece that is sung is, At Baba Yar there are no monuments. And it was about the senseless, barbaric, subhuman slaughter of Jews and Ukrainians and Russians in a ravine outside of Kiev. And uh, he wrote this poem that was published in a literary newspaper in the Soviet Union and was quickly a scandal because it referred to the suffering of Jews over the sufferings of the Soviet people and also implicated to some degree culpability in that massacre. Nothing in me shall ever forget. The International... Let it thunder when the last anti-Semite on earth is buried forever. And this became the first movement of a very brooding, portentous symphony that included another poem called Fears. The line is sung that fears are ending in Russia right now, and it's about the fact that in the 30s and in the early 50s, Soviet society was terrorized by its ruler. And as I write these lines, and I am in too great a haste at times, I have only one fear when writing them. The fear of not writing with all my power. It's a deeply profounding work, and at the end, the music is very beautiful. And even though the subject matter is grim, it's actually saying that there's, there's always this one place of beauty in the world, which is this art form. I would close with Mussorgsky, Modest Mussorgsky, and his second opera, which is called Havanshina, or The Havansky Affair. It's deeply pessimistic about Russia and Russian history. And the paradox of Russian history, among many, is that oftentimes the people have settled for a brutal dictator who at least suggests order. He wonders why Russian rulers have gotten away with their monstrousness and horribleness and crimes with impunity. He wonders how it is that these people actually managed to actually control a sixth of the world's landmass. How did they pull it off? By what mechanisms did they decide they could actually destroy other peoples, to destroy their own people? And basically says that the people always lose, and ultimately, the people at the top always lose. 
because, you know, everybody schemes and schemes and schemes, but ultimately everybody loses. All of these pieces protest the kind of Russia we have today. All of these composers wanted Russia to engage in a dialogue with history in general and to stand for, you know, values that you consider to be not simply timeless, but, but fundamentally international, the things that connect us all. None of these composers wanted Russia to be a particularly strong nation. It's grim. It's art that's created under pressure. It's art that somehow flourished despite censorship and repression and limitations and living in a time when very little was possible artistically, but everything was taken with deadly seriousness. And it challenged those repressive circumstances. Today's show was produced by Victoria Chamberlain. It was edited by Matthew Collette and engineered by Afim Shapiro. It was fact-checked by Laura Bullard. The rest of our team includes Halima Shaw, Will Reed, Hadi Mawagdi, and Miles Bryan, and Sean Ramosfirm. Our supervising producer is Amina El-Sadi. Vox's VP of Audio is Liz Kelly Nelson. We use music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Noam Hassenfeld. Inspiration for today's show came from a story that reporter Hannah Alani did for WCBU Peoria Public Radio. We are now airing on WCBU and on other public radio stations thanks to our distribution partners at WNYC. Today Explained is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Thank you.